What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Fitness Stuff for Normal People podcast. I'm Tony, and this is Mariana. It's no secret the fitness industry sucks, whether it's the corrupt multi-billion dollar supplement industry or the endless supply of influencers promoting anything to drive page views. The bottom line is we're not trying to provide just another fitness podcast, but completely change fitness for the better by providing you with the knowledge and tools to give you confidence in applying the best possible training and nutrition into your own life where today we have another special episode one we actually haven't done in a couple months in studies that blew our mind where mariana and i both picked handpicked two individual studies that absolutely changed our way of thinking whether it be in the past few months or even one today over a decade ago that's what we're getting into and as always thank you so so much to everyone who gives us a five-star review on spotify on apple that 10 seconds that you take right now, or as Mariana's about to go into it, means a ton to us. I think we broke, do we break a thousand yet on Spotify? We're freaking close. I I feel like a broken record, so I keep saying that, but we're close. So thank y'all who have done it. And if you're the thousandth five-star, screenshot it, send it to me, and we'll send you some Legion protein or something like that. But Mariana, (laughs) before we get started, tell them about what we got. Fitness Stuff Premium. We actually have an awesome deal going on until the end of the year. We're offering 50% off your first month subscription of Fitness Stuff Premium for those of you who want to give it a try. So it's just $5 a month and you get access to our private premium feed. You can listen to the weekly research review, get access to the Ask Me Anything episodes, ask your own questions, upvote on popular questions, and this all will display right on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. So it's very seamless, convenient, and you get a little bit more from us. And you also get access to special discounts with companies like Examine Plus, Merrick Health, and more. We do not accept any sponsorship or payment from these companies, which allows us to pass on greater discounts to our subscribers, making some of the best names in health more affordable. You can sign up for our premium research review in the show notes below or at fitnessstuff.supercast.com. And a quick note from our first sponsor today, Eat This Much. They are a meal planning app. You can also track your calories, macros, get specific goals. I really love it for the fiber goals. They make your protein goal really easy to hit. Mm -hmm. They have a variety of different meals and recipes. You can plan a week's worth of meals at a time on their premium version, generate automatic grocery lists, automatic leftovers, customize each day of the week. They make it so easy to achieve your nutrition, health, fitness goals, whatever it may be. And I just love how accessible it is to everyone. If you want to try out their premium version, you can get 20% off and your first two weeks of premium free at eatthismuch.com forward slash fitness stuff. So go try that out. Maybe gift it to someone for the holidays. That's also a great option. I freaking love our two sponsors. I actually do. I just freaking love <laughs> Eat This Much. I've recommended it so much over the last week just talking to people. Me too. Because of how easy it makes planning out, especially for protein. So freaking easy. And I know from our second sponsor, Legion Athletics, who I love equally. I don't pick favorites. If you missed their Black Friday sale, which was honestly, I think the biggest sale I've ever seen them do. It was 30% off most supplements and they were giving away gift cards with each Big order. If you missed that by the time you're listening to this, I stocked up. I think I got actually eight tubs of protein. What? Because why not? Get it when it's cheap. Plan it out. But if you missed that, you can still get 20% off with code FSPOD or FSPOD, your first order. Or you could use the link in our show notes as well if you want to stock up. I know they've got a couple holiday flavors, which I actually love. None have topped 
for protein, the honey cereal for me though. None have topped the honey cereal, but maybe one day. I actually I use their honey cereal in an eat this much recipe that I made for Thanksgiving. I made some protein sweet potato muffins, which sounds weird, but they were so good. Oh, especially with that honey cereal flavor in it. That sounds yeah. incredible. I know I've seen people use them for overnight oats, even just like a little milkshake. You can use it with legit anyway. So you can use those codes down below. And if you listen to our top five best and worst supplement episodes, I think it was last week or the previous week before that, you know how important it is to trust a company that gets third-party tested, that invests in safe and reliable supplements. Legion was on our top five list in there, along with some other great brands like Thorn and Pure. But Legion, as far as sports nutrition goes, is just the best of the best. So that's why we partner with them. And that's why they're a phenomenal sponsor of the episode today. Now, before we get into the studies that blew our mind, forget how much I actually love these episodes. I think it's been over two months. Yeah, it's been a while. But before we get into it, I just broke this news to Marianne this morning. I hope everyone saw this. I woke up a little giddy this morning because our long-term, I don't want to say public enemy number one, but he's up on the list, Liver King. Derek from moreplacemoredates.com. If you've never seen or heard of him, go check him out. He just did an hour long episode, pretty much outing him. This dude, Liver King, who we've probably brought up multiple times on this show alone. He was taking over $15,000 in performance enhancing drugs and steroids. Absolute insane, all in the marketing campaign to build ancestral supplements, which did not make our top five list. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, I'll give you that hint. Which I was freaking pumped for. And I know, Mariana, I can't believe you didn't hear about it earlier. No, I didn't. This happened last night. I think last Derek night. posted it last night. But it's an hour-long YouTube video. He brings his freaking receipts. It's all the leaked emails, his dosage, everything. Message oh with his doctors. God. It's incredible. If you have an hour of your time or just have a little time to put on the background, please do it. I think he's doing a second episode on his blood work, his leaked blood work as well, which I'm excited for. If anyone's surprised that he's been doing this for money and that he's not natural grown those supplement companies. I think three separate companies to million plus dollar revenue companies in the last year alone. So obviously some people it's not obvious. It's not too obvious. He does what all successful supplement companies do. He profits off your insecurities. He takes words from science that may sound like it makes sense and completely twists them. To- <laughs> I don't know about him. Paul, okay, Mr. Carnivore does that. I'm like, Liver King, does he do that? I feel like Liver King well, just Well, in their marketing primal. for just like the product in general, uh, he's extreme. It's he not enough beef, beef liver, extremes. and testicles. That's what I learned by watching. The Liver day King. that not- I saw someone eating a testicle on TikTok, I really had to reevaluate my career as a whole for a second. I'm like, is this what I'm in? The field that We're I'm in right now? We're not eating enough <laughs> testicles. That's what it is. It's not primal, Mariana. We've gone soft. So mm. I woke up in a good mood because of that. He's going down. I know Carnivore is going down next, their business partner, so that'll be fun. But uh, today we're getting into a few big studies. So as always, if you're new to this setup, Mariana and I both handpicked two individual studies. We'll go back and forth, going through, reviewing each one, what they found, and why it completely shifted how we thought or approached some aspect of training and nutrition, which I think that's the best way I could put it for studies that blow our mind, right? It was like before the study and after the study, this is what changed. It didn't just add on to, but it changed the way we saw some aspect of health, right? They've been a fan favorite. We're sorry for holding out on you. We've been busy. We've been busy too. (laughs) Should we go ahead and get started? Yes. Let's do it. So I'll go ahead and kick things off. All right, I'll go first. I drew the short end of the stick. First 
study I pulled up has more to do with training and body composition. The second one we'll talk about later is more about diet. Now, the first study I pulled in was actually back in 2006, so almost two decades ago. And the reason I pulled this specific study is because it was the first one that was ever brought to my attention where body recomposition was observed in trained individuals. So I want to break down what that means in a second, because it might not sound that exciting or mind blowing to start. Now, body recomposition, for those who are unfamiliar with that term, is essentially the goal of having gaining muscle and losing fat simultaneously at the same time. Because really, when you approach training, when you approach working out, getting healthier, when it comes to composition, you typically have like three main goals. I think 90% of people's goals could be chalked up in this, right? Either to lose fat, to build muscle, or to build strength, or some combination. And you, the latter two, building muscle and strength, require a different nutritional approach than the first one, right? If your goal is to lose fat optimally, you're in a calorie deficit. This is well known. If your goal is to build muscle and strength optimally, you're usually eating in a calorie surplus. So those are going in two different directions. So people that want both, which I think a lot of people do want to lose a little fat and build a little muscle. It's like, what do you do? Because one nutritional approach is going this direction and the other is going the opposite. So they contradict themselves. And I think that's where a lot of people spin their wheels. And if you even ask, I think most people in the fitness industry, they discount and say, okay, well, recomp is pretty much impossible unless you fall under one of two categories, right? You're a newbie or you've trained for less than a year, right? You get those newbie gains. You've been training for less than a year. Or number two, you're in the extreme obesity or extreme weight loss category where you've got 50 to 100 plus pounds to lose. That's when you might be able to increase muscle while losing weight. But those are the only two situations. And they say, if you've been training for more than a year or two, you can't recomp. That's a very common narrative, right? You just can't because we know how newbie gains goes. And I think we've covered it not in a, a specific episode by itself, but in several other ones. I know in building muscle, I think in the protein episode as well, that every year that you're training consistently, your potential to build muscle decreases every year for especially the first four years is when it gets cut in half and then it becomes very small after year four. So people think, okay, if I've been training for longer than a year or two, you just can't build muscle at the rate that you once could. So the hopes of building muscle while losing fat is just, it's a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. It's a pipe dream. And this is the first study. And this is the funny part where it was observed on accident that it's possible in people who have been training for more than several years. And the funny part is this was observed by accident because they were just comparing two different supplements group supplementing with a whey protein supplement versus a casein protein supplement, which are just two forms of milk protein for those who are unaware, which we'll get into the numbers here in a second. But that's what cracked me up is they noticed and trained individuals that you could recomp without that being the actual goal of the study. Does that happen to you a lot where you notice something they find wasn't actually the goal of the study? Oh yeah. That can happen again, depending on what you're looking at and what field, but and sometimes there will be even more findings that they just choose to not include because it's not really relevant. I want to go through what this individual study does because this was the first one. Now, just a side mention, I know this is coming out Monday. This last Friday, the Fitness Stuff Research Review for premium members, the one that Mariana was just talking about, we actually dug deep into a review going over 12 individual studies and six separate case studies looking at the optimal diet and training approach to achieve body recomp 
if you are a trained individual. So we go over the entire field of data in the research review. I do want to note that. So if you want a little more information on what it is, you can go ahead over there because we're just going to go through what they did in this study today, which is, <laughs> we were talking about this before. I don't know how sustainable the approach they took in this study was. Now, this study, they took recreational bodybuilders with at least two years of resistance training experience, consistent resistance training experience. So what they would consider trained individuals. Another thing I liked about this study is, and we talk about this more in the review, a lot of studies use different measurements for measuring body composition. This one did use a DEXA scan compared to several others that have used bod pods. And I want to get your take on this. Usually DEXA in my, at least what I've seen, DEXA is a little bit better for leaner individuals, more accurate, where bod mm -hmm. pod is more accurate for people closer to the average body comp. Would you agree? Yep. That's, yep. That's exactly right. Cool. So they use DEXA in this one. And it's important to note, recomposition is where you increase lean body mass and decrease in fat mass. And I think an important thing to note is a lot of people, when they hear lean body mass, right, or LBM, they assume it's muscle. And we have to remember lean body mass doesn't just mean muscle. It's just all weight in your body that is not from body fat, right? So you have body fat or fat mass and you have lean body mass, which is everything else. So not just muscle mass, but water, bone, skins, organs, right? Everything that's not coming from body fat, which is important to know, even though muscle is typically the one that you can increase and decrease the most, right? You're not going to see usually significant changes in organ weight. Or, or my kidneys gain five pounds. <laughs> Some kidney gains. That'd be bad. <laughs> right. So you usually don't see that. So that's typically what it measures, but it is an important thing to note. Um, and what they did was they separated groups into either a whey protein supplementing group or a casein supplementing group over a 10 week. And here's the cool part they did a 10 week linear progressive overload training program. And that's important. We go over that more in the training protocols in our research review. But training to progressive overload is absolutely necessary for something like this to take place. So they actually did a really good job. And I know we were looking at the full publication below. They actually had a pretty solid training routine. It was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, full body split. And every two weeks, periodically, they implemented another overload phase for each 10 weeks of the study, which I thought was very cool. Now, the piece that in this study we learned in the research review doesn't necessarily have to be that high. In this study, both groups increased their protein intake from roughly about 1.8 kilograms, or sorry, 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, all the way to 2.1 grams of protein per kilogram of body per day. Now, for all of us dumb Americans, that's 4.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. I had to text Marianne and say, hey, am I missing something? Am I reading this correctly? 4.6, meaning a 100 pound individual would be eating roughly 460 grams of protein, right? And these supplements that were heavy. That makes me want to barf Outrageous. so much. I don't think people truly realize how much protein that's 4.6 grams per pound of body weight, which is crazy. Both groups consumed roughly the same amount of calories and protein per the day, but it's important to note through this study too, when they actually measured it down, I thought this was a cool note to calories per kilogram of body weight the whey protein group was actually about 250 calories higher per day. So they were in a larger calorie surplus mm -hmm. than the casein group. Now, what they observed was wild. And I had to double take and read through a few times. The whey protein group gained five kilograms of lean body mass, of lean body mass. And I had to double take because I'm like, well, that you can't build 
muscle tissue that fast. No one can. Even on anabolic steroids, even on liver king quantity EDs, you can't build five kilograms of muscle mass, uh, which is roughly what? 10.4 pounds of muscle tissue in 10 weeks. That's a pound of muscle a week. That's not something you can do. And in that, they also lost one kilogram of body fat measured in DEXA. So they gained five kgs of lean body mass, lost a kg of body fat, right? And both groups significantly increased strength measures on bench press, squat, pull downs, all measures there. But this is the first time it was observed to increase lean body mass while decreasing body fat over 10 weeks in this programming. Now, I think it's important to note as well, the lean body mass gains, I'm going to guess because this is a limitation I put down as a study, is they did not also keep track of carbohydrate intake during the study. And we know that carbohydrates do increase water retention if you see a giant wave in carbohydrate intake. I'm going to guess a lot of that lean body mass did come from water weight because those are like that and muscle are the two biggest numbers that can shift. But that's not insignificant. Five kilograms is a lot of weight to go up and down. Again, it wasn't even the, the actual goal of the study. They just had a low number of test subjects and 10 weeks isn't an insanely long period of time, but for weight training studies, it's pretty standard and they didn't measure their carbon fat intake, which might give us a little more telltale to that extra lean body mass came from. But this blew my mind because again, this is the first study leading to many others done by even Bill Campbell, a guest of the show before he had a great one on females, but that it was actually possible. It's not something you can just rule out. How many times have you heard a coach online talking about recomp and just telling people to forget about it unless they're a newbie. I've seen it dozens of times. I've seen both ways too, though. I've seen like coaches get on and say that you can absolutely 110% lose fat. Oh, okay. But are those coaches usually the most credible or trustworthy coaches? (laughs) But out of credible coaches, usually I don't see them talking about body recomp being a realistic goal. There is people that are like, but those are also the same people who will tell you to eat 1200 calories a day to spend hours on the treadmill to do crazy things like that. But yeah, overwhelming. It's wild. That wasn't even thought of. So that's why I pulled this individual study out. And again, it, the, the research review, when we really dove into it, it's so freaking cool. And we can actually look out and say, okay, these are the key points. Here's where protein should be. Here's where our energy intake should probably be. Here's what our training should look like. It's even more interesting when we look down into that, but this was such a pivotal study because it had not been observed before this, especially to a degree. Mm-hmm. That it was observed in this study. That's why I put this as number one. Yeah. I, this was I think a big it's also one. important to note that this, if I'm not sure if anyone's thinking this way, but this is not the same as I know we've talked about this before. Like you can absolutely see changes in your physique, like looking at progress pictures, looking more, feeling more toned, mm-hmm. looking at more definition in your body, and maybe not see the scale as much. I feel like this is sometimes this, like that aspect of like, seeing differences in your physique while not losing weight like that's not the same conversation as like body recomposition losing mm-hmm. fat build like building muscle at the same exact time this is a lot more specific i want to say if that makes yes. sense yeah no that, that's an important thing to highlight because i mean we yeah we talk about that all the time and that's why progress photos are so massively important it's another great method of tracking progress but yeah this is more specifically looking at it especially in a clinical setting where we're actually measuring the outcomes and the inputs instead of just someone going off of an individual case study or just, you know, oh, well, one time I did this or, you know, I did that at the same, but where you're really measuring and tracking and how were you 
not to this extent. So that was why I got excited about it. First one done in 2026, but there's been, I think, what do we include in the review? 12 separate studies and six individual case studies as well mm-hmm. in bodybuilding. So there's a lot more information that has followed this study, but that's why this study was pivotal. It was the first one to say, hey, there might be something here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was yeah. long-winded. I didn't want to take up too much time because Mariana's first study, she was hitting at me. <laughs> I'm actually pumped to hear about this because I don't think a lot of people understand what this problem is. So hit them yeah. with number two. So completely different direction. Looking at a study here that is an observational study, I think it's really important because you hear so much, especially in the fitness space, like randomized controlled trials. That's the gold standard. You need them. It doesn't matter if it's not a randomized controlled trial. For the most part, yes, that is the case. But when you're looking at populations, when you're studying groups of people, this is the field of public health nutrition. You study groups of people, you do this in epidemiology, you study behavior, you look at socioeconomic status, job status, family style, how that affects certain aspects of your life. Like how are these populations of people, how is their health maybe changing? And how are those factors affecting that looking at a population as a whole? That is, this is an observational study that is so impactful for the field of public health. So I like to just make that disclaimer beforehand that in certain situations, certain niches, areas of study, don't rule it out because it's not a randomized controlled trial. It just mm-hmm. depends on what you're looking at. So this study was titled, Lack of Access to Healthy Food May Raise Risk for Death from Heart Failure. That's a bit bit much there. But this was published in October 2022. I did try to include more recent studies. I like to have those almost like current event style of research. Wait, um, okay, wait. This was a month ago? Yeah. My other Ooh. one was published November 11th, 2022. Hot out the oven. Okay. So a little bit of background on the specific study. So our food environment factors like in, do you have access to food? Do you have a grocery store nearby? How long would it take you to go drive and get some vegetables? Could you walk? That's our food environment. Do we have more fast food than fresh food? That mm. means. And factors of our food environment contribute to cardiovascular disease, but their effect on population level heart failure and mortality is unclear. So that's what this study was looking into. It's one of the first analyses to investigate the association between local food environments and heart failure mortality. So why is this so important? We spend so much time on social media talking about, not Tony and I, but people in the health, wellness, fitness space, talking about specific foods that make you sick, that -hmm. you should avoid, that cause disease, that cause all-cause mortality, make you at an increased risk for developing diabetes, specific foods. We do that all Mm -hmm. the time, tell you what not to eat, fear monger the shit out of you. And food insecurity is such a huge problem in the U.S. and it shouldn't be. So food insecurity occurs when healthy food is not readily available on a daily basis due to poverty or socioeconomic challenges causing people to go hungry or eat food that is reduced quality reducing quality, variety, or desirability. So there are many factors there. It's not just people who don't have access to healthy food. It's you don't have access, but you also don't have access to a sufficient amount of food in general, period. And while previous research has confirmed that food insecurity is associated with adverse cardiovascular outcomes, little research is available about the local food environment. So in your individual counties, potential relationship to death from heart failure. So I think around 12% of the U.S. is food insecure, which sounds maybe like a small number, but that is for a a country that produces 
so much food and wastes so much food, it is astoundingly large. Uh, that should not even be the case. What would you consider, is there, you might not have this answer, what consider? What would consider someone to be food insecure? So like it's a when city. you, like on, if you lack, so there's scales actually that'll get into oh, here okay, that measure okay. food insecurity. So you measure it by county. Okay. It's like a certain amount of days out of the week where you either didn't have access to food, you didn't have access to sufficient like nutrients on a daily basis. Like it's reoccurring. I don't have access to mm. safe, sufficient, healthy food. And that sounds pretty broad, but you measure that on a few different scales. Uh, and that's in cool. each like county database that we'll get into. That's what we'll dive into now, what these researchers did. So they actually, so although the study was published recently, they reviewed 28 data from an, the National Vital Statistics System, a database of all births and deaths in the U.S. So they took a little bit older data, examined the potential for associations among the heart failure death rates in each county with the county's 2018 food insecurity percentage score and food environment index score. So these are, I know so many people think that there is not so much going on to try and understand why people don't have access to food and just think that our country wants us to be sick. There are public health professionals that devote their lives to this. That's why we have these measurements yeah. in the first place. And they collected each county's food insecurity percentage score, the percentage of, and here's an example of what this is, the percentage of the population who lack adequate, consistent access to healthy or more nutrient-dense food. So that consistency piece is a huge factor. And the food environment index score is ranked from zero to 10. So this was based on a composite of metrics, including affordability of nutritious food, the food insecurity itself, grocery store proximity, mm. transportation, and socioeconomic factors from the USDA's Food Environment Atlas and the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation County Health Rankings. So these are very specific measurements that allow us to understand. I was going to say, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot oh, that seems yeah. to go into it. Okay. Huge, huge. So food insecurity is heavily, heavily studied by public health professionals. And the Food Environment Atlas as assembles statistics on food environment indicators and provides like a spatial overview of communities' ability to access healthier food, which is pretty cool. So of the 2,956 counties in the study, here's what the analysis found. And now this is an analysis. There's going to be, does not mean that food insecurity causes heart disease or causes death. It is a factor that can play a role and put you at increased risk of dying from heart disease if you are at food insecure. It's not cause and effect at all. Mm. Looking at relationships, that's what these observational studies do. Big highlight. So the average food insecurity percentage was 13% for all counties. And the average food environment index score was 7.8. So getting more granular into this, counties with a food insecurity percentage above the national median of 13.7%, so higher food insecurities, had a higher rate of deaths from heart failure compared to the counties with a food insecurity percentage below the median. So this is, mm. yeah, so this is 30 Point seven deaths versus 26.7 deaths per 100,000 people, respectively. So there was a significant difference there between those who were food insecure and those who were not in their deaths from um, heart disease. Yeah, deaths from heart disease. And after adjusting for a range of different socioeconomic and health factors, including poverty rate, income inequality, rural versus urban locations, type 2 diabetes, obesity, smoking, 
A 1% decrease in food insecurity percentage by county was associated with a 1.3% lower heart failure death rate. So as your food insecurity decreased, so did your um, heart failure death rate, which is huge that that was significant. And then similarly, a one unit increase in the food environment index score by county was associated with a 3.6% decrease in heart failure death rate. So the, the food environment played a really significant role there. So again, that's kind of like distance to a grocery store versus a fast food restaurant. Yeah. Just how, yeah. How easy or hard is it to get? Yeah. Good yeah. food. So on the county level, decreases in the food environment index and increases in the food insecurity percentage were found to have a stronger association with the death rate from heart failure than with the death rate for other subtypes of cardiovascular disease. So this is, why is this so impactful (laughs) is because we are looking at something that is controllable. We can control these counties, these districts, these states can absolutely help shape these food environments and don't. You look at the South and how long it takes to get to a grocery store. And you also look at the rates of obesity and food insecurity in the South, much higher. So that is not a coincidence and our government has a lot of control over how that plays out what these food environments look like so that is something that's really big to take away food insecurity and lack of access to healthy food are key contributors to poor dietary quality and what is referred to as nutrition insecurity so The American Heart Association and others are now acknowledging that to help Americans achieve ideal cardiovascular health, particularly through diet, you need to broaden your efforts to address both the psychological and social determinants of our health behaviors and well-being. So it's not just telling someone what they should eat and shouldn't eat. There's a huge, huge brick wall in front of you before you can even get to that point. And that is this issue of food insecurity in our food environments this accessibility problem with food. So you can't tell people what they should be eating when they don't have access to it. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Uh, so well, I know this, yeah. I was just going to say, cause we talk about that all the time on the, especially like the, the quote unquote, like the influencers that usually are the ones that say, eat this and don't eat that. I mean, I guess we both have this bias a little bit too. We both live in bigger cities, mm-hmm. Boston, San Diego. I know I live within two blocks of two separate grocery stores of two separate markets and about a five minute drive away from like two public farmers markets a week. Mm -hmm. It's all like right here. It's not something you think about of, Oh, it's just make better choices. Cause I was even thinking when, when you brought up the South, when I moved to out of home, when I was 18 for the first time or 19, I forget how old I was, but moved to Georgia, it was Gainesville, Georgia. So like Northeast Georgia, I always say Atlanta cause it sounds cooler. But when I initially moved out there before moving to the city, I moved to Gainesville and there was like, one, it took a five minute drive just to get to the nearest, like food in general, like long path down here, food in general. The closest food options were five guys, hamburgers, I think a subway, but I think that closed. And then there was like this Mexican fast food restaurant. Yeah. And then it was another five minutes just to get to the grocery store, which didn't have the most just copious amounts of nutrient dense foods. We can put it that way. Yeah. But it's something yeah. like that where it's just, it's not right there. I have a question for you real quick. On the food insecurity, not the counties that have more dense populations, but the ones that are really widespread, especially in the Midwest Mm -hmm. and the Plains, is that an easily 
fixable problem when people sometimes in some parts of the country there's like really some like really spread out population yeah. or is that where it's still going to be a struggle do you think i didn't mention we know you know what to do you know how to change this but it's not easily fixable mm -hmm. this is not an easy problem to fix especially when you think about places that are so spread out it, it, if you just put a grocery store at multiple areas that are so spread out, you're not going to get many people there. So grocery store is not going to stay. Economically, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. So that's where you have to get more creative about, okay, the Greater Boston Food Bank, for example, they mm. have a mobile food truck that is like a grocery store that they do every Sunday. Oh, that's dope. And it drives from like corner to corner, neighborhood to neighborhood, and also will go out outside of Boston to the places outside of the city. And we'll do that once a week. So that is a program that was put into mm. place by the Greater Boston Food Bank to help address this issue when we know we can't go outside of the city and just build a market or grocery store. It's not going to stay in business. So that's where, and there are definitely nonprofit organizations down south that, that probably have plans in place like this or similar. There's not enough enforcement yeah. backing those nonprofit organizations to make it more of a priority. There are ways you can get creative looking at a federal level, how SNAP, I mean, SNAP benefits, which is how people get money to be able to afford this food. It's embarrassing how little money families get. So many families are not applying anymore. So they're not even trying to get assistance because it doesn't even change their lives at all, making it more just adding more SNAP benefits there, making fruits and vegetables more accessible on SNAP, opening it up to larger families. That is a federal level issue. It doesn't address the food environment, but from a behavioral standpoint, if people know mm -hmm. that they have the money to actually go out and yeah. get these fruits and vegetables, maybe. Looking at school lunch programs. So how can we change school lunch programs where we know kids are going every single day, increasing accessibility there, having fruits and vegetables for kids to take home. Those are smaller scale things that some communities do, but not a lot. I'm looking so. at Jeff Bezos. I'm like, get some drones flying. Give me some grocery drones, man. Right. <laughs> that, that's so huge just because again, yeah. I've not heard anyone talk about this being an issue and at least something to consider if you are struggling with losing weight, what does your food environment look like? Mm -hmm. We talk about how your environment makes things exponentially easier or harder all the time because it does. So is that another fact that you might want to take into consideration and say, okay, let's label it so we can work around it. Then just getting frustrated because you're right. Like the people who fear monger and just say, eat this, or I can't believe you're eating only this. That's what's realistically available. And then the people who feed into it are the people who have access to it and who are, of course. are, are making those changes or already also have that mindset as well. That's yeah. the catch 22. Those audience bases are all the same people like cloned. So it's just not help, helpful. And then you mention this, like every time I mention this, people are like, yeah, well, it still matters. Like healthy food still matters. You could not have missed the point more. Couldn't mm -hmm. have missed. Yes. Healthy food absolutely matters. I didn't say it didn't, but how are we going to even allow them to make a decision between an apple and a bag of chips? If the apple is not even a decision to make. Like, you yeah, know do I mean? you want this apple or bag of chips? But the apple is also, you got to jump over that crocodile river to go get it. Yeah. Or the bag of chips is right here in front of your face. Take the bag of chips. That's not how it is. Yeah. Okay. So, it, it's a huge yeah. issue. I think that's why I freaking love that you brought it up. It's not something people talk about. No. And of course, observational studies like have their limitations. You're looking at populations at a whole. You're not looking at each individual person. You can't say cause and effect. This is really just looking at patterns, associations, 
that can be a benefit and it can also be a limitation of the study. And because it's not like you're going to take this and say, oh, well, you're food insecure, so you're going to get heart disease. Let's change that. It's a much greater, the conclusions you draw are much more broad. And then also you do have this factor of when you mentioned like in the South location, you also have way less movement in these more rural spaces. So if you're not in a walkable place, you're walking Mm -hmm. a lot less. So that can also contribute to increasing your risk for heart disease as well. So. Yeah, that is a big one, which honestly, this kind of, I don't know if we even did this on purpose. That kind of feeds into my next study kind of perfectly. Yeah. Did you even realize that it kind of feeds Mm -hmm. it in? So study number three, two freaking bangers to start off. Might I add study number three, my finale I kind of, I don't like this one more than the first one, but it's also interesting. So this one, it feeds off of what Mariana was just talking about. Now it's a study looking at ultra processed diets and the title is ultra processed diets, naturally increasing calorie intake. Now, I think this is something talked about a lot and it's inferred, but it's, I just love when we can put measurable data onto a thought. I love that. Mm -hmm. Now here's what happens to your weight when you simply just eat ultra processed foods compared to unprocessed foods without tracking calories, without trying to gain or lose weight at all. And I think, do you have a good definition for what ultra processed means compared to just processed or should I pull that up real quick? Yeah. So like an ultra processed food goes through multiple rounds. I think it's like just like the ingredients are highly manipulated. So Mm -hmm. whether that's like milling, molding, extraction, like different levels of processing. I don't think you can actually quantify that, but they contain many ingredients that have been manipulated, changed multiple times, gone through many rounds of processing. Yeah. Because people, I even got, I'm an idiot because I I entertain this again, got into an argument with this lady in my Instagram comments because I posted something about how there's no such thing as an unhealthy food. And she's like, processed foods are terrible for you. And I'm like, well, like, Greek yogurt's a processed food. Yeah. What about yes. the almonds I had this morning? Are those almonds terrible for me because they're processed? It's like, okay, there's a difference. We're talking about ultra processed foods as in things like chips, chocolates, candies, burgers, those ultra that go through multiple, multiple, multiple yeah. rounds. Ultra processed foods is what we're talking here. Now, this I was a I think I have s- another, I'm going to add in before, yeah. kind of to put this a little bit clearer like a processed food, like you said, Greek yogurt, it's when like an ingredient such as oil, sugar, or salt is added to foods and they're packaged. The result is a processed food. So okay. a bread, a cheese, tofu, canned tuna, that's a processed food. Yeah. They've been altered, but not in a way that is multiple levels. It's like they have a few ingredients added there. Yeah. So it's important to, and I'm sure there's ultra processed foods that are beneficial to health as well. All right. So it's not all black and white. That's never what it is. But this is a really cool RCT. It was a randomized control tile. And yes, we'll go over some limitations. It was very small scale. But here's what I absolutely loved about it is they just took weight-stable adults, right? Weight-stable adults. And they essentially just changed their environment to food, giving them access to three meals a day of either ultra-processed foods or unprocessed foods in a diet, right? So for two weeks at a time, and this is what they did, is they separated these individuals into two separate groups. One group for two weeks, they just had one hour, 60 minutes a day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner to eat as much as they want 
That was what they're instructed. They're not tracking calories or protein or anything else. They just said, eat as much as you want. Here's your food options. And those options were either unprocessed for one group or ultra processed for the other group. And at the two week mark, what they did was they switched these groups. So the ultra processed then started having options that were unprocessed and the unprocessed for the following two weeks then had options to ultra processed only. And it was absolutely insane how quickly and how identical the shifts were, right? So all subjects, no matter the group, no matter the time frame, averaged consuming 500 more calories per day, around 500 extra calories per day, when they only had option to the ultra processed foods compared to the unprocessed foods. So again, they weren't instructed, hey, you're trying to lose weight. Hey, you're tracking your food, be careful. They just said, hey, go do what you want to do. Eat until you're full or whatever, who cares, right? The ultra processed groups, no matter if they started with ultra processed first, or second, or if they switched or did average 500 added calories per day when they had access to only unprocessed, ultra processed foods. Not only that, but the graphs, and I wish we could put up the visuals here, the graphs of what their body weight did as well was, it was almost like laughable how quickly it was. They were averaging, the ultra processed group was averaging gaining one pound per week while on the unprocessed diet, or sorry, on the ultra processed diet. While the unprocessed diet, again, doesn't matter if you switched first or second, immediately started averaging losing one pound of body weight per week. So the ultra processed diet not only consumed an average of 500 extra calories per day, but also was averaging gaining one pound per week, while the unprocessed was eating 500 calories fewer per day and losing about a stable pound per week. Yeah. Big. That's big. It's big. And it's also, I love that you included this because it does go along with what we've talked about just so much on the podcast in general, but you are, your health is a product of your dietary patterns. So what do these ultra processed foods have? They're super high in sugar, super high in fat, have a bunch of refined oils, seed oils. Mm. They have all of those things as a whole looking at these foods as a whole. Again, this didn't look at people's health outcomes, but what the majority of studies will do is look at people having a standard American diet, which is a primarily Mm -hmm. ultra processed food diet, look at their health outcomes and compared to those who eat a predominantly whole foods diet. And yes, of course, the ultra processed diet, you are going to see in the long term poorer health. That is a product of your dietary pattern as a whole. It's not the sugar alone. It is not the seed oils alone. It's not Mm -hmm. because it's high in fat, high in carbs. You are eating mainly ultra processed foods, which also causes you to eat more than your body needs. And over time, if you are continuing to do that and continuing to put on weight, that also affects your metabolic markers. So that, that is one of the biggest reasons why I am so bothered by the people who will point out, especially with the seed oil conversation, yeah. in an ultra-processed food and point out the seed oils and say they're added to everything. You're assuming that this is all the person is eating all the time. Yeah, it's easy to overconsume. That's mm-hmm. what makes it dangerous. That's what makes ultra-processed foods typically viewed as negative for your health is not because of the sugar, not because of the sodium, not because of the fat, not because of the seed oil. It's because it's much easier to overconsume. Yeah. It's a lot easier to overconsume, like you see here. They just naturally eat. 500 is not a little amount of calories. I know that some people eat 500 calories for an entire meal. And that's what they overate every single day that they were given access to that ultra processed foods. And here's a, a limitation of that study 
that honestly I think highlights another key cool note is also the fact that these meals were prepared for and paid for at no cost to these subjects during this trial. Another key highlight is that ultra processed foods are generally cheaper and more convenient than preparing meals using unprocessed or whole foods overall. So this was when cost and convenience was completely taken out of it. These were just your options. They were bountiful. They were right in front of you. What if they also added some value of saying, hey, like we just talked about in the previous study, the unprocessed foods are going to be a little bit more expensive. They're going to be harder to get. They're going to be harder to cook. And these options over here are easy. They're ready for you and they're cheaper. Then I'd be even more curious to see if that number increases or decreases based on that alone. Because yes, it was a limitation of the study, but I think it's a really cool note to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Cost does affect food choices. That's been in public health research that's been shown time and time again, unless if you are a very like in your, you're in the upper middle class, upper class, even middle class nowadays, food is not, healthy food is not accessible. Food is Any so, food's so, not, so expensive. So the thing of bacon is like $9. I know. I just bought bacon the other day and I was so sh- I don't typically like, I'll get it every now and then. And I haven't bought it in so long. And I thought it was going to be like five bucks. It was a nine. That's what I'm saying. Like, I see all these inflation rate things. Oh, it's like 10, 11, 12%. Okay, let's talk about bacon. That's like 120%. Let's talk about the stuff. Bacon (laughs) eats me up. Apples? I've been so sad because in the fall, apple season. I love apples. But especially in their peak season, when there's so many of them, I thought that they were going to be cheaper. And not even the best apple, like a Fuji apple, non-organic Fuji apple was like $1.99 a pound. I like Fuji apple. Me too, not but it's not, hun- it's not a honey crisp, which is typically- <laughs> She ain't no honey crisp. <laughs> I typically expect like 89 cents a pound for just a generic apple. One ninety nine. That's why you got to go to Trader Joe's. They don't charge per pound. Yeah, they that is a charge per apple. Recent discovery I've had. So no, we'll, we'll put a cap on my two studies. So one, first one was looking at body recomp in trained individuals. That one got me hyped up. And the second one, again, buys with yours, your first one, looking at your environment. Oh, it matters. It matters. Mm-hmm. Now finish this off. Finish this off yes. with a big one because you were telling me this one's a little bit more complex. Science. Yeah, it's a bit more science. Complex, heavy. but it's a big deal. Yeah. So this was published November 11th, 2022. I love to bring in the newer research. If you guys ever want to stay up to date on nutrition science research, Science Daily has like a nutrition science news that they continue to update and release articles that are recently published. And it's just a great place to go to find articles. You won't always get access to the complete article, but it's still cool to stay up to date a bit there. And I know Examine Freaking also two weeks does ago. something like that where they'll publish. Yeah. The new- Examine Plus research feed is something I actually use a lot in our research review as well. Publishes the most, pretty much like you just said, the newest research coming out and they do a really good job breaking it down for you. And it yeah. can go across any subject brain health to nutrition to training to everything that's i think that's only for examine plus though yep which you can yep. get a discount on fitness stuff premium oh and... yeah we actually just partnered with them they have they have a sick deal it's usually 29 bucks a month it's 19 bucks a month if so. you can go through through premiums so this study titled genetic background has an effect on the metabolism of essential fatty acids what is an essential fatty acid we can start with that first so those are the popular you've heard of them omega threes and omega sixes. So also known as your omega-6 fatty acids are known as linoleic acid. That's the scientific name for them. Omega-3s, alpha linoleic acid. Where is linoleic acid found in? Your lovely vegetable seed oils. 
And both are essential. They're not produced by the human body. They must be obtained from food. So just getting that there. Both diet and genes have been found to have an effect on concentrations of different fatty acids in the body. And this has been found mainly through in vitro studies, animal studies, really looking at genes, understanding them a bit more. The FADS1 gene regulates the metabolism of your polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are your omega-3s, omega-6s. And the FADS1 genotype has previously been associated with glucose and lipid metabolism disorders and with the risk of type 2 diabetes. So this is one of the most, I personally think, I mean, I studied it a lot in school, but fascinating parts of nutrition science research, understanding how your genotype can play a role in your risk factor for certain disease and where nutrition may be able to intervene there. So linoleic acid is the most common dietary fatty acid in the omega-6 family. Again, that is found mainly in seed oils. Alpha linoleic acid, on the other hand, belongs to the family of omega-3s. Varying concentrations of both are found in vegetables, vegetable oils, seeds, and nuts. High intake and plasma concentration of your linoleic acid, I'm going to keep saying, reminding you guys that is your omega-6, has been associated with a lower risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I know that's going to be crazy for some of you to hear. So it has been well documented that when you replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, like your linoleic acid, your omega-6s, it reduces your risk for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. But the association of alpha linoleic acid remains unclear, which your omega-3s are really good for heart health. But looking at your lipid concentrations, so the concentration found in your blood, we know that people who typically eat more omega-3s eat more whole foods in their diet. We can look at populations as a whole, study their risk factor for disease looking at what specifically is going on in your body, in the blood, the concentrations of these fatty acids, how does that affect your health? So this is very going diving very deep, and that's why there's that distinguishment there. So as metabolites of linoleic acid and alpha linoleic acid, the body produces lipid mediators. What's that? Lipid mediators just in general are important but some of them are also pro-inflammatory. So I didn't want to dive too deep into that because I could just, their names are more complex. That's not what we're here to get. But a lot of these lipid mediators that, again, come from these omega-6s and omega-3s, once you digest them in the body, or are supposed to, it's hypothesized, can be pro-inflammatory. So that's where you get this hypothesis that if you eat more of the omega-6s, which do on paper, when you're looking at the inflammatory response in our bodies, the linoleic acid omega-6s play a larger role in the pro-inflammatory response, which is why people have taken that and said they're inflammatory. Mm -hmm. No, we need a certain level of inflammation in the body. It is very, very important. So the goal of this study was to explore whether mutations in the F. ADS1 gene, so that gene we were talking about before, modify the effect of our omega-6s and omega-3s on the composition of these fatty acids in your plasma. So if they affect what these, the composition of the metabolites coming from these essential fatty acids look like in your blood and the concentrations of these pro-inflammatory mediators derived from 
polyunsaturated fats. So how are mutations in this gene affecting the concentration of omega-6s, omega-3s, as well as their pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory mediators that they produce? So what did they do? This is a smaller study because it is more specific. You have to take people who do have a mutation in this gene. They had 118 people. Carriers of two different FADS1 genotypes were recruited among men participating in a study, a metabolic syndrome study. And I think that was also done like in, I think it said 2019 or 18. I forgot to write it down. And they supplemented their diet with 30 to 50 milliliters of camelina oil or sunflower oil daily for eight weeks. I don't know if anyone who's petrified of oil is like, <gasps> like that's, that's a adding that into your diet. They didn't make any other dietary changes. Mm. So that is, I think that's important to note. That's an additional supplement, an additional add-on. What the body can do is it, it can produce two different types of acids. I'm going to, the biggest one that I'm going to name, so I don't confuse you guys too much, is that it can produce arachidonic acid from linoleic acid, which is your omega-6s. And that arachidonic acid that can be produced from omega-6s is the mediator that produces those pro-inflammatory markers. So that is why it has been hypothesized time and time again that if you are eating more omega-6s in your diet, you are going to have more arachidonic acid in your body, thus you are going to have more inflammation. This is a hypothesis. I'm going to say that so many different times. That's a hypothesis that has been shown to be true in my studies. It has never been shown to be true in human studies. So they are trying to see the true in people with this mutation in this gene, or is it untrue? And the long chain fatty acids, which are these polyunsaturated fatty acids produced from them are involved in many functions in the body, such as the inflammatory response and vascular function. What did they find? They found that the FADS1 genotype plays a major role in how efficiently essential fatty acids are converted to arachidonic acid in the body. How efficiently they're, com they're converted, what does that tell us about how much they produce? So if you are having more omega-6s in your diet or omega-3s. Use of the camelina oil rich in alpha-linoleic acid, so that's your omega-3s, increased the concentration of lipid mediators derived from it. But also those mediators are like the arachidonic acid or the anti-inflammatory mo molecules. So they looked at two different types there, but only in these genotypes studied. So if you had this specific genotype, you did have increases in concentration of these lipid mediators that play a role in the inflammatory response. In contrast, the use of sunflower oil rich or omega-6 rich oil did not increase the concentration of the arachidonic acid. So that's your pro-inflammatory mediator or it's derived following derived lipid mediators from that in either of the genotypes. So they looked at people with who carried this gene and those who did not. What does that mean? I just threw out so many different words. I was going to say, explain <laughs> to me like I'm five. So the sunflower oil group, the individuals, whether or not they had a, had this specific genotype or not, when they supplemented with sunflower oil, 
more sunflower oil. Again, that's our omega-6s. That's our vegetable oil. That's the scary one that we think it causes all of this inflammation. That's what the guy in the grocery store with no shirt on is telling us yes. is going to kill when me. When they okay. added 30 to 50 milliliters of, oh, it was 50 milliliters of the sunflower oil to their diet for eight weeks, there was no change in the concentration of arachidonic acid, which is that precursor to the inflammatory molecules in your body. So there was no increase in arachidonic acid. There was no increase in inflammatory markers from adding more omega-6s to your diet, adding more sunflower oil. No changes. That's big because you would, in today's day, you would expect, oh, they're adding more sunflower oil. They're going to have a lot more inflammation. Yeah, you'd think that number would go up. There was no difference between groups. The gene did not play a role in that. But when you suppl- when they supplemented with these this omega-3 oil, they did see increases in these precursors that produce a lot of anti-inflammatory molecules. Mm. And they saw a greater increase in individuals with this specific genotype. So that, that's good. That is good for our body. We have more anti-inflammatory markers when we have this omega-3 suppl- supplementation, essentially. And it was greater in individuals with the specific genotype than those without it, but they both saw increases. So that was a lot of words. That is nutritional biochemistry for you if you're ever confu- interested. If you want to study it, it's a lot. It's a lot there. But that is so I don't need to get there's really not many rabbit holes to go down there. Why is this impactful? Not really deriving this from a oh, seed oils are fine for you, have them. That, that that's not it. Again, they're found in ultra processed foods. They were supplementing with the oils. This is also something to consider. They were supplementing with the oil. They were not adding more ultra processed foods to their diet. Again, what did we talk about? It's not these individual foods. It's not these individual foods causing we don't eat just individual foods in isolation. But yeah. even so, they were not adding these just the ultra processed foods, adding more foods with seed oils in them because that could hinder the results because you can't control for that. You don't know if it's actually the seed oil or if it's the high fat, high sugar, you more calories. You, you can't control for that. That is um, big because I feel like most of the research that people that do point out and say, okay, seed oils raise your inflammation. They're terrible for you. They're killing you. I feel like most of the things that they point at are looking at diets that are overall higher in those, but also unaccounted for if it's ultra processed foods, if it's anything like this. Kind of the same argument though, is the people who identify sugar as the problem. Look at all the sugar you're eating. Look at that cake. Look at that ice cream. Are you going to ignore the fact that these have so many more calories, so much more fat, so much more X, Y, Z in it, not just the sugar, not just the seed oil. I feel like those are the research or the points that people that do claim seed oils are killing us point at. Yeah. I would love to I would love to see their response to something like this. Yeah, and then you also look at like the my studies, right? That will show if you add more of these omega 6s vegetable oils to your diet like you get all this inflammation. They're only giving these rats, rats or mice only giving them seed oils or just mega dosing them with them in an amount that we would just never eat. So there's no comparison there because it's not it cannot be taken into account in the in your diet because it's just you would never eat that much even if you're only eating ultra processed foods you would have to just only be eating sunflower oil all the time and we don't do that that is so huge and also there's also this annoying thing that because oils certain oils can go rancid what happens is oils will oxidize if they start to go rancid that can produce a lot of reactive oxygen species which promote inflammation in the body. 
But what people are doing is they're saying, oh, because these oils are more prone to oxidation going rancid, that also will happen in the body when we consume them. That's not how that works. If they're not properly stored and handled and they go bad, they go rancid. That is a similar process to what could potentially happen in our body, but that doesn't happen when we consume them if they're not Makes sense if you don't think about it. Like you're comparing an oil going rancid to what would happen if we just consume a not rancid oil. What? That's why they're stored in the dark containers. That's why they're supposed to be in like a cool, dry place to prevent them from going rancid. Some are more stable than others, but it's just like, please. please That's my number one goal here. is to get you and Paul Saladino on the same podcast. That's going to be my new goal. Who's that? Pa- the carnivore MD. Oh, I don't even know his name. Every time I stitch his videos, they get taken down. <laughs> That's my goal is to have an unfiltered debate. I, I honestly don't even know. Like, I wouldn't want to talk to him. People like that, I don't like to talk to on a you. nice debate. I think you could be nice. I believe in you. I think it'd be a fun one. But yeah. Okay, so takeaways from this also, yeah. if you are a person that knows you're at risk for cardiovascular disease, maybe you do have some, like maybe you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and sometimes it's recommended to increase polyunsaturated fats in, in the diet. What type? Well, maybe leaning more towards in like a clinical setting, this may show that maybe we need to lean more towards recommending omega-3s. Not, we don't have to worry too, too much right now about saying reduce your omega-6. It's let's not just focus on increasing our polyunsaturated fats as a whole. Let's lean more towards recommending omega-3 specifically, omega-3 rich foods specifically, omega-3 supplements specifically. So that can be more, that can be even more impactful than saying, don't eat omega-6 foods, avoid yeah. foods high in omega-6s. It's not productive. So It ain't, it's not productive. So solid wrap. Solid wrap. We got a little, we got a little big wordy. And Sorry. then we brought it back in. I knew and that one, I in. couldn't not. But it's, it's important, so but it's important. It's That's important. why I don't talk about this stuff much on social media because if I'm just throwing out like alpha linoleic acid, arachidone, no one's going to listen. No one I'll, wants to hear that. Versus if you say seed oils are going to kill you, everyone will listen. I'll so. listen. Be your number one fan. Y'all know what to do. This was another great one. If you have feedback on these episodes, which we love, shoot us a DM on Instagram. That's usually where we respond the best. And then finally, again, if you have a chance, the last Friday, so a few days ago is when we posted that research review covering that first topic that we went over to looking at many, many more studies on body recomp, diving into specifically what nutritional and training measures are usually seen to achieve that. That was a really fun one. That's an exciting one. And again, it's 50% off your first month. You can check that out in the show notes below. We're doing that through New Year's for our holiday special. Go check it out. Go join us and let us know what you think. But let's hashtag make research cool again. (laughs) Maybe that's a no. good t-shirt we could do. Make research cool. Come on. I'm trying to come up with a catchphrase. We need, if you got no. a catchphrase for Mariana and I, let us know. I'll make my own t-shirt for Christmas. Anywho. You can follow us on social media, fs.pod on Instagram and TikTok. We are on YouTube as well. If you want to watch their fitness stuff for normal people. Love you. Thank you all for the positive reviews. We love y'all's feedback. Have a beautiful, productive week. Yeah? Yeah.